guess the show has to start with something, so why not start it with T.S. Eliot? Welcome to Mostly Illiterate. This is a show dedicated to the exploration of the minutia of literature, and this is the first episode. I'll try to keep episodes between 6 and 15 minutes, and in this time we'll try to take a deep dive into a single interesting element from literature and all the other doors it opens. Very little artificial summaries here, just the details within the details. So, let's get started. The love song of J. Alfred Prufrock has become a staple of most early literature courses. From my experience, less people enjoy T.S. Eliot than actually read him, and I'm one of those weirdos that actually really likes his work. This poem, in fact, is one of the ones that got me into this whole literature thing. The poem starts with six lines, often overlooked, from Dante's The Inferno in Italian. In fact, I couldn't find a single audiobook or audio presentation that had him, even the really, really legitimate ones. I'm sorry to do this to any of you Italian speakers, but I'm about to read them in Italian, so here we go. Si credesse che mia risposta fosse la persona che mai tornasse al mondo, questa fiamma staria senza più scosse. E però che mai di questo fondo non torno vivo alcun, si odo il vero. So a quick search and you'll find the translation without much effort. Here's John Chiardi's. If I believed that my reply were made to one who would ever climb to the world again, this flame would shake no more. But since no shade ever returned, if what I am told is true, from this blind world into the living light, without fear of dishonor, I answer you. So here's the common train of thought. It's from Dante's The Inferno. It's about answering and responding to a request, and there's a reference to the inability to escape. It seems as though Eliot is setting up a guide for the reader and placing the reader into the position of Dante, even challenging them to address and confront a sin. It fits well with the overall tone and the rest of the themes of Eliot's love songs, but if we keep digging, we find something else. This particular passage comes from Canto 27, and it is told by Count Guido de Montefeltro, a soul condemned to burn eternally for his role as an evil counselor. A bad pope, Pope Boniface VIII, there are so many bad popes in Dante's hell, also happened to push him to commit his sin. But that did not save him from his grim fate. He finds himself in the second bulgia, or pit, of the eighth circle of hell. It's a pretty gnarly place where people are basically burned alive as if they were in a Sicilian bull or a brazen bull. And if you don't know what that is, imagine a Greek barbecue with a giant flame, a brass bowl, and a roast in that bowl. And that roast... Well, it's whoever Tyrant Phalaris deemed worthy of that suffering. It is said that the bull was also shaped in a way to accentuate the screams of the victims. It seems like a strange way to make a siren or a megaphone, but I guarantee you that it's far less annoying than my old high school's bell. Dante's lines for describing the people suffering in this layer are horrifying. According to him, the layer bellowed with the voice of the afflicted, that notwithstanding it was made of brass, still appeared with agony transfixed. Thus, by not having any way or issue at first from out the fire to its own language converted with the melancholy words. It's lines 10 through 15 in Canto 27. In short, the pain they were experiencing is so visceral and acute that they were literally creating a new language from their cries and suffering. Ulysses is in this layer too, by the way, but let's not get into that right now. Anyways, back to the count. He was tossed into the Bolgia because of Pope Boniface VIII, who pushed him to give malvolent council to raise Palestrina to the ground. Those people were Christian too, allies of his faith, so destroying those people actually heightened the gravity of both Guido's and the Pope's sin. That Pope argued that Guido's sin of advising him to betray those people was absolved prior to him committing it. 
Digital Dante from Columbia University actually writes it really beautifully, so let me read just a couple small paragraphs from that. In Dante's account, Guido had abandoned his life as a warrior and politician, and yet his sinful inclinations were so strong that he was susceptible to the temptation posed by Boniface VIII. His conversion did not take, he was tempted, and he fell. In hell, he was furious at the man who outwitted him, and regretful that his brilliant plans to achieve salvation were thwarted. But the issue is not truly Boniface. The issue is what Boniface revealed about Guido. Guido de Montefeltro put great effort into taking the steps that he thought would guarantee his salvation, renouncing his worldly life to become a Franciscan, yet he fails because his heart did not change. So in other words, he followed his faith superficially, with only physical action, but he did not abandon the spirit of sin. He was a hypocrite counselor, undeserving of vindication because of his internal avarice and vice. Quick shout out to Columbia's Digital Dante, by the way. It's an indispensable resource if you ever want to explore any of Dante's work. So here's where this gets really interesting. This quote, the one that opens T.S. Eliot's love song, is said not by the saved, but by the damned. Eliot's love song is about a speaker with his perception of society, women, masculinity, and his own purpose. The poem is actually disjointed from narrative time as the speaker seemingly ages. And this narrative convention of time is something Eliot challenges a lot in his works, like Wasteland, Four Quartets, but that's something for another episode. What's really important here is the narrative perspective. The speaker of the love song is consistently demeaning himself and feels his aging reflected by women that speak of Michelangelo, and he certainly is no Michelangelo. He proclaims toward the end of the poem in this fit of despair that I have heard mermaids singing each to each. I do not think that they will sing to me. The speaker's assertions are a condemnation of a feminine society. Women to him are vain succubi or mermaids ready to drown men sailing through society. And time seems to always exist in a leisurely industrial 20th century, but it fades through the poem and the speaker is left clutching at some desperate, disillusioned conclusion before his death. The final lines read, I have seen them riding seaward on the waves, combing the white hair of the waves blown back when the wind blows the water white and black. We have lingered in the chambers of the sea by sea girls wreathed with seaweed red and brown till human voices wake us and we drown. As a counselor, Prufrock asserts the destitution and demise of society and the inevitable downfall of people to an illusory figment created by the modernizing world and masquerading as the meaning of life. It's a siren song pushing people to live leisurely, comfortable lives driven by hedonistic values. Yet the shallowness of this existence is revealed through aging and decay, consequently leading to the decay of the values Prufrock held and values society seemingly holds. In short, Prufrock's negation of his own life and meaning and his acceptance of negativity is an assertion for the shallowness of modernity. Thus, when we are awoken from this dream, the dream that society provides us purpose and meaning and that our lives are valued, we wake into an empty vortex of modern experience, the victim to the whirlpool of time that sucks us with great veracity into its abysmal, meaningless center. But where is Dante? Where's Virgil? What about the Count? that we mentioned earlier, and that Eliot actually quoted in the very beginning. And that's what this episode is really about. Without a careful look at the context from the passage from the Inferno, it seems as though Prufrock is Virgil and he's taking you through the grotesque realities of the 20th century urban society. After all, Prufrock does guide us through the streets and even welcomes you. Let us go then, you and I, he starts the poem, right? 
So maybe Prufrock is the enlightened being trying to save us and address society's sin, just like Virgil is guiding Dante to address his own sin. But that's not really the case. You see, you are Dante. Eliot is Virgil. Pope Boniface VIII is society and Prufrock. He is the condemned. He is Count Guido de Montefeltro. So this leads to some very interesting consequences. Prufrock, his epiphanies, and his perspective is entirely annihilated before he even has a chance to speak. He is true only in the sense that he speaks what is worthy of condemnation, and Eliot offers criticism not so much of society, but more of the pessimism and victimization of Prufrock himself. He is not some tortured innocent victim of the New World, and he is not a man of virtue. Instead, the opening suggests that we listen to Prufrock much like Dante listens to Count Guido de Montefeltro. We need to discover the vice, identify it, and cleanse it from our soul. Only then can we achieve some element of salvation in a world fraught with the damned. Prufrock is that vice. Prufrock is the soul burning in the brazen bowl. So where does that leave us? In the decade or so that I've been studying literature, I've come to appreciate more and more effective use of context to shift meaning, especially with illusions. More so, I've come to question more and more the messages that come from villains. And as I'm writing this, this seems painfully obvious, yet as I reflect on my literary career, how many times have I given credit to a villain's perspective because I neglected to take into account the context? How many of us read and allow ourselves to forget the extremely enticing message that is intended to be undermined by the speaker's ultimate fate? That's where Macbeth comes to mind. I mean, he has a final soliloquy that condemns life to a walking shadow. Is this somehow virtue? What about Todd Phillips's Joker, you know, the one with Joaquin Phoenix? He uses trauma to justify violence, victimizing others through his own victimization. Is this somehow virtue? And what about Raskolnikov or Ivan from Crime and Punishment and the Brothers Karamazov, respectively, who use intellectualism to twist the undefinable elements of life into rational egoism? How is this virtue? All of these villains make enticing, compelling points that, taken out of context, manipulate the misguided, and those misguided are everywhere around us. They are in me in my intellectual infancy. They are students who find themselves connected to the possible utility of Raskolnikov's murder. They are the adult proofrocks of our world draped in ignorant hypocrisy. These are the virtues of the damned and their main signifiers. And if we are to traverse through life without a true fear of dishonor, we must learn to answer them in opposition rather than alignment. These proofrocks are not to be praised and their negativity and nihilism are caustic emblems of the damned tortured by their own sin. They are roasting in the brazen bowl of their philosophy, and Eliot's love song is the scream from Prufrock, who is misguided by a philosophy of negation and destitution. It's the emblem of society's evil counseling. This has been Pavel Tridiak and Mostly Illiterate. If you've listened this far, why not subscribe? I'm not sure where this podcast is going to go, but we'll see what happens. So until next time, keep turning those pages. Thank you.